Song number 89, we'll use this evening, this morning as a song of encouragement. If you would be marking that, we'll, of course, use that at the appropriate time in our service. Hymn number 89. It is the case that as we have opportunity to gather and to assemble, it's so exciting to lift high the banner of the faith that we enjoy in Christ and the songs that Jeff has led us in this morning. Faith is the victory was the first one we sang. Reminding us of the very words found in the book of 1 John in which it is highlighted explicitly that that victory that overcomes the world is in fact our faith. As we come though to the expectation and the consideration for the moment before us this morning, Brother Glenn just read for us in the fourth chapter of the book of 1 Timothy, let me ask you to consider a subject attached to the very holiday, but far more powerful in general in the sense of its biblical presentation, that which we find housed in the language of thanksgiving in the two verses read for us earlier. Receive with thanksgiving. As you and I ponder the attributes of all those things, let's begin with some of these introductory comments. With our reading soon approaching the 90% mark through the Word of God this year, we are now in a position to appreciate explicitly that this Thanksgiving season is shortly upon us, a day in which many look upon it as a rather favored time to simply be free from work and a time to eat a great amount. There are others that look upon the holiday far more profoundly. It is a great and powerful time to reflect upon all the blessings that they have and the opportunity to use a special time of thanksgiving for them. I suppose for many of us, a number of those attributes are descriptive of that day we call Thanksgiving. However, the Bible has so much to say about the very measure and the means of and the importance of Thanksgiving itself. I would invite us, as you notice some of those comments, to think about what Paul had to say about them in this passage and some implications of those things for us. May I suggest that we would do well to start that by reflecting on the context. We never desire to take a passage out of the specific subject that was being discussed. How often, you and I have noted, a passage taken from its context becomes a pretext. You can use it seemingly to teach what is not in the very mind of God. Beginning in verse number 1 of 1 Timothy 4, we so you see immediately that the issues in the mind of Paul and those which prompted the Holy Spirit's writing had to do with some troublous times on the horizon in the future of the church. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter days, the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. As the Apostle Paul made these comments, you can immediately tell that from the moment in time he wrote that in the midst of that first century, Holy Spirit had made known that there were some dark clouds hanging over the future of the church from that moment. Things in which individuals were going to be prompted by seducing spirits. Teachings and doctrines and presentations were not going to be in harmony with the Word of God. And you'll notice Paul even listed what some of those teachings would be. 
speaking lies and hypocrisy. These individuals that teach these things would be motivated by perhaps an element and an interest in sincerity, but he said they're lying. And they're motivated, and the whole attribute and characterization is that of hypocrisy. He went on to say, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. They seemingly have moved to a point where they do not allow themselves to be touched by the element and fervency and the nature of the truth. Their conscience is seared and predicated in the way that it's moving, and they are not to be dissuaded. Verse number 3 says, Some of the things these shall teach, it's best not to marry. There will be those who would affirm in this line of seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And you and I immediately think about, of course, the Catholic tradition in which they to this day hold their priests and rabbis and others that occupy the highest echelons must remain celibate. We notice he goes on to say, commanding to abstain from meats. Paul could again see by the Holy Spirit's revelation there was going to come a time when there would be various and sundry teachings to where you need to abstain from certain things food-wise. Don't eat it for a protracted period of time. You and I again perhaps think at once about Lent and the other features in which the teaching is that there will be those who you need to abstain from certain choices of meats or other kinds of foods for a certain period. All the while, you notice, that statement is quickly qualified. Commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received. These very foods that some are teaching that you need to abstain from, God made them and created them to be received. And to do so with thanksgiving. The very opposite of what these individuals would teach. The shocking matter and the truth that you and I see in it, how often has the human family fallen from the pureness and the pristine beauty that attaches to the Word of God? Though many may have been motivated and prompted by things they consider good, they've changed the Word of God to the point that it bears little resemblance at times to what God intended it to be. It says, God hath created to be received with thanksgiving. These foods, these meats, these matters to be ingested, God created to be received, but men are teaching to avoid them. And men are teaching to have nothing to do with them. The last part of that verse, Received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Thanks be unto God that there is a truth. The truth set forth in the wonderful and marvelous Word of God and when you and I recognize those who love it and those who believe it are not those blown about by the claims and the whimsies and the presentations of men. Paul instructed that young preacher Timothy, Timothy, you be aware that these kinds of teachings are going to be coming soon. You in Ephesus, remember that's where Timothy was left. He was left in Ephesus, a place that had its own number of issues, problems, and difficulties. Timothy, be aware there will be those attempting to teach these kinds of things. But you need to believe and know the truth. And you need to bless all those who hear you that they may also appreciate, follow, and consider in their mind the livelihood found in the truth. At that point, as you transition to verse 4, the Holy Spirit then says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. 
for it is sanctified by the Word of God in prayer. As you can tell, the immediate context has to do with foods, things that would be eaten. And as you can see on our slide, God created these to be received, to be received with thanksgiving. There should be an attitude of gratefulness, an attitude of appreciation in your heart and mind as we give thought to the blessing of provision of food. It really is an amazing thing, isn't it? This world now having well over 7 billion people living upon it, and yet a large number of them are far hungrier than you and I. Many of them have not nearly the opportunity of food and access to it that you and I have. It does assert that whether it be little or whether it be much, you and I need to receive it with thanksgiving. Receive it with an attribute, an attitude of heartfelt appreciation for this provision of God. It really is a great blessing, isn't it? No wonder as you look at some of the next verses near the bottom of that slide, we find that the concept of thanksgiving is, an, is a frequent one in the Word of God, isn't it? Near the close of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul admonished the Ephesian brethren in light of the needfulness to ever be thankful for that which is God's provision to them and for them. In 1 Thessalonians chapter the 5th chapter, we find again a reminder in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you in Jesus Christ. In everything give thanks. I would invite us all then this morning to think for the next few moments at least about giving thanks, turning our attention and not finding ourselves either specifically or even indirectly in the issues of ingratitude that seemingly characterized these to whom Paul wrote. They were commanding to abstain from meats, but Paul said God intended them to receive with thanksgiving. As you and I think about and develop some of those precepts, why don't we look at the particular statements one by one? The first thing that you and I might notice, verse number 4 begins with these rather interesting words. For every creature of God is good. That seems like an extremely broad statement, doesn't it? Every creature of God is good. We can immediately recall and recollect the initial proclamations of the Holy Word of God. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we find a description of the creation. Day 1 and day 2 and day 3 and on down the list all the way to the conclusion of day 6. And in each one of those days, some amazing attributes and features of the creation were put in place. Not only things locally on earth, but even the far distant characterizations of the cosmos. And verse number, or each one of the verses closes by saying, When the first day, and the second day, and the third day, and the others were ended, it says, God saw that it was good. What He had done on day one was good. And the same was true of the succeeding days. And then interestingly, at the conclusion of day number six, it says that when God looked upon that which concluded the features of the first six days, it was very good. Well, what a monumental statement of reflection that all that this creation was indeed something that was very good. We serve a very good God. Great in power, great in love, great in desire. And we notice even in the physical attributes of His creation, it was very good. 
that goodness of God housed in the purpose of that creation takes us immediately back to this text before us. Every creature of God is good. And immediately you and I might be tempted to think about certain attributes of God's creation. Things that perhaps bring an element of challenge to our thinking. I would ask you to perhaps look at it in the following way. We immediately conclude that everything that God made is good for the purpose for which He designed it. And the purpose for which He made it. The human family has often twisted and perverted and changed and altered and modified and turned around the things that God has made so that now it's used for purposes that are not good. That does not reflect on what God originally made. You and I know very well that corn and barley and yeast and sugar, they're all fine and well when you use them rightly but use them together and make beer out of it, and now it's not good anymore. God never had that in mind with respect to it. Those elements and those things are good for the purpose for which God made them. When man uses the things God has made for purposes far removed from his initial intent and design, verses like this have no claim on that. One couldn't rightly claim that alcoholic beverages based on this verse are good, that's a perversion of that marvelous opportunity and the amazing provision that God has made. You and I know that that kind of thinking, of course, can be extended many, many times over. It is a wonderful thing that there are surgeons that can open up a person's chest and do open-heart surgery. It truly is an amazing opportunity and blessing, and thankful are each of us, I'm sure, there are people out there who are skilled enough to do that. But the same surgical means whereby one can open a heart and do surgery under the same medical means that allow abortions to take place. The latter is not good, never has been, and never will be. The human family, as it chooses to approach and to tackle the blessings that God has made, can often use things in a way that's very sorrowful and very sad and can bring much damage and hurt. Every creature of God, for the purpose God designed it, was good. No wonder in light of things like that, you and I can notice a number of considerations in passages. I'm reminded of that text opening Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Maybe it has occurred to you as well where it says, To everything there's a season or purpose under heaven. When we think about the nature of there's a time to build and a time to destroy. And you and I each understand the nature and the importance of such a thing. When it's time to build, that's not the time to destroy. And when it's time to tear down and replace, that's not the time at that moment at least to build. You and I must be carefully in tune then, do we not, with the nature of God's Word so that we can appreciate what is the teaching of the Word of God. In recent years, there have been many who have thus used verses not unlike this one to teach certain things that ultimately are, are improper and wrong. But yet they make claim, well, didn't God make this? Didn't He allow the human family the opportunity to engage in it? And doesn't this mean that by default that it's good? The answer is no. It doesn't mean that by default at all. Many times you and I notice in the Old Testament the children of Israel 
made mistakes, not unlike that. God had blessed them with opportunities and yet even commandments touching certain things and they twisted them to the point that on more than one occasion God said, that never entered my mind. What they had chosen to do with the altars, what they had chosen to do with their own children, as great as those blessings were, were abominable in the sight of God. May you and I, as we approach the topic of Thanksgiving, I suppose the civil holiday this year, be mindful that every creature of God is good for the purpose that God made it. And what a great blessing it is to rest in the sweetness of that consideration. You'll notice as we close that slide, how often did the psalmist remind us in Psalm 136 of God's mercy extended to you and me and that mercy how good and how great it really is. The inspired writer, though, went on to say this. Verse number 4, Every creature of God is good, 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, but in continuation and nothing to be refused. It sounds then as if it'd be wrong and sinful to refuse anything that's offered. Is that too broad a consideration? Let us again place that back in the context of his presentation and develop it like this. We know e easily, based on this, there are some things that we're going to be taught and some things that are a part of the choices of the human family that themselves are not good. We are warned so many times about the evil associated with certain things, how that choices are bad. These choices invariably lead to ways that are not pleasing to God. If someone offers you a beer... This doesn't mean you're supposed to take it. If they offer you a cigarette, you're not supposed to take it. If they offer you any other drug, be it nicotine or otherwise, we understand that this wasn't to be taken as a blanket statement that anything that's offered must be accepted. In fact, Paul often urged you and me to resist the devil and flee from him. Didn't James make that statement in James chapter 4? as you and I then seek to resist that which is the evil about us. It says here, every creature of God is good, nothing to be refused. As you and I develop it, we also readily see that not only must that mean we in service to God refuse some things, may I ask you to notice that 1 Thessalonians 5.22 makes this commandment to you and me, abstain from every appearance of evil. That word abstain is a very strong verb. It is a verb that highlights an avoidance, a verb that highlights no association with. And aren't we each commanded in that regard to have no association, no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness? To borrow the words of Ephesians 5 verses 8 through 11. Those kind of associations remind us Jesus didn't accept any and everything that was even offered to Him. In Matthew 27, our Lord was offered some vinegar on one occasion. The text says He did not accept it. Jesus didn't thus disobey a commandment like the one before us. You and I, of course, recognize we must be carefully in tune with that which is the provision of God. And when it comes to that which is against the nature of God, we must refuse. No wonder in light of those things, you'll notice, we're also admonished that there are times in light of our consideration and our love for the souls of others 
we might be led not to accept something. The situation of Romans 14 and also espoused in 1 Corinthians 8 was a discussion about certain kinds of foods in that first century era. The setting went like this. There were some who, of course, had obtained meat at the meat markets in the Roman Empire, but that meat had been previously offered to idols. Knowing, at least in some cases, where that food had come from, there were some who then were troubled. May I, as a Christian, partake of that food knowing where it was? Previously, at some former time, it was offered by someone else, not me, but someone else, in a matter of serving an idol. May I now partake of that food, which is no longer having any association with idolatrous activity. Paul wrestled with that as he posed to both the Romans and the Corinthians concerning it, and he argued that if that meat causes my Christian brother to stumble, that person's faith to be crushed or at least to be greatly challenged, Paul said, I'll eat no meat. I'll refuse it in light of love for him. We see one more time that our consideration, our notion, our appreciation of the faith of others might well prompt us to make some choices that we otherwise wouldn't make, perhaps refusing some things. No wonder as you look at this particular text, every time that we either accept or refuse something that is a matter of God's creation, we do so to glorify Him. 1 Corinthians 10.31 We do so with a desire to lift high the banner of the truth of the gospel. No wonder with those two statements made, the next one is this one. It's found in the fifth verse of this same chapter. These foods to which Paul had referred, it says, it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. This food that was supposed to be received with thanksgiving, this consideration that should have been received as a part of God's provision, he says it's sanctified and two elements, two attributes enter into it. Sanctified by the word of God on the one hand and prayer on the other. Let's think about each one of them in turn. What does it mean to say that food is sanctified by the Word of God? The word sanctify means to consecrate, to set apart, to make holy. How could then it be appreciated that the Word of God, the blessed news of the message of revelation from heaven, might in fact be a part attached to sanctification of something eaten? Well, you'll notice at the bottom it seems to directly touch the matter of God's authority. You and I may ask the question, at least in consideration to what was true in the Old Testament, were there certain foods in the Old Testament they were not supposed to eat as faithful Jews? We understand well the answer. In Leviticus chapters 11 and 12, there's a lengthy list of animals and foods that they were never ever to eat. We often think about pork products, admittedly, but that was but one of what was forbidden to them. In fact, it would in some ways be a shorter list to ask what they were allowed to eat rather than what they were not allowed to eat. But you and I, as we come to the New Testament, we notice that explicitly God hasn't provided to us statements much like that. Here, in fact, it says every creature of God... If you and I wish to eat bacon and sausage, 
there's nothing against the law of God today about that. If we wish to eat other particular products, be it vegetarian or otherwise, again, that falls within the consideration of what is the Word of God. He hasn't today forbidden things of that character and nature to you and to me. It is true He's forbidden blood to us. Just like they weren't to eat or drink blood, we aren't supposed to either. But aside from that, one will find very little mention in the New Testament about that which food-wise is forbidden to you and me. You'll notice that's the thrust of this text. It says, by the Word of God, it is authorized. And you and I can appreciate God's provision in light of it. That kind of blessing reminds us of just how much about us in the world is able to be consumed by you and by me. But you'll notice there's some other things that you and I might observe. That authority vested in the Word of God when it touches things that you and I eat leads us to notice that that authority in the Word of God touches, yea, every part and aspect of your life and mine. That authority. Notice again in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for instruction, for correction. And those statements, notice correction, what is proper doctrine and what is not. Everything that God's Word sets before you and before me is then to be carefully considered and rightly divided, 2 Timothy 2.15, and thus applied in the, the correct fashion. Word of God authorizes it. And if the Word of God authorizes it, no man has any right to claim otherwise. And that's what these false teachers were doing. God had authorized and they were forbidding. That's a mistake, isn't it? No wonder in light of those things. What about the second part of that verse? It is sanctified by the Word of God and prayer. There's something very special then about sanctification, even in relation to foods, in relation to prayer. As you and I study the Word of God, we find that on many occasions, I've listed several of them, but on many occasions, we find that the inspired individuals made record for us of persons who prayed in light of thanksgiving for the food that they were about to receive. When Jesus fed the 4,000, and on another occasion when He miraculously fed the 5,000, you and I might well recall that the Lord offered prayer of thanksgiving in relation to the food that He was about to miraculously distribute among them. On one occasion, five loaves and two fish, and yet use that to feed such a large multitude. On another, we remember that as Jesus offered a prayer of consideration and thanks for that. Consider yet another one. As we think about Peter later, in Acts the 10th chapter, although a notable event was about to take place, namely the conversion of Cornelius and his household, it was about the noonday hour, and Peter had gone up, and the text says he was involved in prayer. Was he praying, among other things, in thanksgiving for the food that maybe he was about to receive? Possibly. What about Paul? In Acts chapter 27, here was a rather interesting situation. In fact, a very dire situation. Here were individuals who for many days had been stranded at sea in the midst of a terrible storm. 
Ultimately, of course, all were fine in that they were saved, but they lost a ship and all of its contents. Paul was very concerned about those sailors, for it says they'd gone many days without eating. They were trying so hard to right the ship and to make sure all was safe and well with them and the cargo. Ultimately, though, it was not to be. Although they were safe, the time came that Paul offered thanks for food and then they partook of it. Does that indicate that you and I should be mindful then to offer a prayer of thanksgiving for the food that we're so blessed to receive? Something to seriously consider. All those examples maybe lead us to one more, even in the Old Testament. As we revisit briefly the days of Job, that patriarch of the East, in Job verses 1 to 5 of chapter 1, we notice there was a description of Job, the kind of man that he was, a man of integrity and a man of uprightness, a man who desired to do things correct and right in the sight of God. We notice in the fourth and fifth verses in particular that he even, in fact, attempted to offer prayers and to offer statements of rightness on the part of his children. Maybe, among other things, we can remember Abraham and others. But for us today, as we think about how blessed we are, are, are we quick to offer a prayer of gratitude and thanks for the food we receive? Or are we so excited to partake of it we forego any thanksgiving? Maybe you and I, as we think about that, should keep in mind the great blessing of gratitude. The opportunity to thank God for that which He's given us, including the food that we eat. You'll notice as you go on in that particular slide, there's a number of particulars that we'll use to close our lesson this morning. Particulars that touch the subject of thanksgiving and particulars that challenge each of us to think about our daily walk. Are we thankful enough or not? We find the physical blessings, and surely our food will be included among them, but blessings such as our clothing, our jobs, blessings including our house and the various and sundry possessions that we, that we have, that we have been allowed by God to procure, a whole list of them. And yet you'll notice in Acts 14, 17, as Paul so profoundly preached on that first missionary journey, he said, God gave them to us. Are we thankful for the provider of them? Are we thankful to the provider of them? I hope as we each realize how blessed we truly are, this is a season that is called Thanksgiving. It should characterize you and me as Christians year-round, admittedly. But you'll notice in Jeremiah 14, even in the days of the Old Testament, it was God that provided those things even to the ancient people of Israel. Beyond those physical blessings that we've quickly enumerated, we can add to that a whole host of spiritual ones. We should not by any means pass this thought too quickly. Much should and could be said about it. Our time won't permit much of that, admittedly. Are you thankful to be a Christian? So many around the world. And our missionary friends tell us about often how hungering those people are. You hand them one tract and they devour it. They read it with such care and they're so anxious to learn what it has to say. Many times they have not a Bible and language they can read and understand. 
Are you and I thankful for the Word of God? We can learn it. Obey it. Rest under the friendly confines of its promises. Where would you be in life without it? And where would I be without it? Wouldn't life be rather miserable in many ways without the reward and the blessing and the promise that it makes available? Let's be thankful for the gospel. Paul asserted his thanksgiving for it in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Perhaps you and I again should recognize that thanksgiving. Those spiritual blessings may well include the church. Are we thankful for it? When Jesus died shedding His blood, that blood purchased the church, Acts 20 verse 28. That's what allowed it to come into existence. Are we thankful for it? Because it is the body of saved individuals, Ephesians 5.23. If we're not in it, we're not saved. Are you thankful to be a part of the church? What about for the work of the church? Paul was expressly thankful for the work of the church. And he said so in 1 Timothy 1 verse 12. Are we thankful here at Pippin for the work God does allow us to continue and to be involved in? I trust we'll continue to pray for the success and the efficiency of those works and to be thankful He lets us do them. Finally, as we close our lesson this morning, we notice one phrase made in our reading. Every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused. That phrase, creature of God, literally in the original language, signifies that which God has made. And thus, you and I can easily see that that could attach to inanimate things like we've discussed, food and so forth. But it can also easily, given what God has made, bring to our minds so quickly the scene of Genesis chapter 2. God made a helpmate for the man. And He blessed that union with children. Are you and I thankful for our families? Thankful for our husband, our wife, our children, the other members that mean so much to us, of course. This season of the year is one when often families come together and enjoy a time of meal, a time of other activities. But we notice in the Bible, Thanksgiving is a really important concept, and God expects us to be thankful. No greater consideration of that, of course, than to be a Christian. For a Christian is an individual who, in the attribute of thankfulness, has bowed his knee before the Son of God. And in so doing, he's made a confession. I believe with all of my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And in the attribute of that, he has permitted himself to be immersed in water, putting to death or burying the old man of sin. If today there's someone in the audience that would desire to be a Christian, that plan of salvation... Believe with all of your heart. Repent of your sins. Confess the name of Christ and be baptized. If we could help you do that today, of course, that would be your grand statement of thanksgiving to God. If you have attended to that but no longer are faithful, come back to your first love. Maybe you've become unthankful. Maybe you've become a person of ingratitude. Why not start setting things in order again? For if we aren't thankful, it's likely that we don't richly and profoundly appreciate all that God has done. Today, if you need to come to His side, don't, don't delay, don't procrastinate, but why not at once? Jeff has chosen a song of encouragement. If during the singing of that song, you'd like to let something be known to us, that we can pray with you, assist you in your obedience, don't delay. 
Why not come in thanksgiving even now while together we stand and sing?